I'm Mari Dangerfield, and you're listening to Sound of Stylus, a podcast all about the stylophone and the people who do cool things with it. This is part two of an episode featuring Leah Cardos. I want to talk about this amazing thing that you made ah. that probably took an awfully long time. It's called Black Star Theory, The Last Works of David Bowie. It's your very first book, I believe. That's right. Um, yep. Can you tell us more about it, the the process of like writing it, and why you decided to write it? Okay. Um, well, there's a boring answer to this, um, and there's a good <laughs> answer to this. The boring answer is that um, I was expected to to propose a book in my role right. at uni. Um, uh, my, I had an academic mentor at uni who sort of pushed me towards it. His name was Scott Wilson, who wrote the Scott Walker book in the same series right. a few years ago. And um, he said, you know, you need to do a monograph. That's what you do when you're at this stage in your career. And so he planted the seed uh, that this should be something I should do. And I was always racking my brain, what should I write about? Um, because up to that point, I had written about a little bit about education because I, quite, I care a lot about education. Mm-hmm. And I've written a little bit about recording uh, and production as a, an art form and to be taken seriously in a musicological sense. So I'd done a bit of writing yeah. about that. But um, I also thought I've got access to Tony. Uh, I'm obsessed with this album. You know, it came out when it came out. I went to um, New York to see Lazarus. I was, wow. re- I was really present uh, as, a, as an observer and as a fan during this period. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very affected by the music and I loved it a lot. And I just thought I've got all this access. I've got all these people I know. I can probably get in and talk to people if you know if I if I asked. And so I thought, well, I should write about this period. And also, um, I didn't like any of the discourse that was being panned around. You know, I, I not that I was annoyed by it, but I just thought it missed the point in in many ways. People were projecting their fear of death and their upset about Bowie dying onto the music and also mm-hmm. um looking for things that weren't there or talking about um, clues or pulling things apart, and uh, and I just thought, you know, what needs to be done is for someone to look at the music first, yeah. and then from there pull everything else because it is a lot of things going on. But like, yeah, so if you look at the music, you can maybe cut out a lot of the bullcrap and like just get to the heart of it. And it was also about cutting through my own projections and you know my own thoughts about death as well because I was a fan and I'd lost my artist, and mm-hmm. and so I think for a lot of people. Um, there's a lot of emotion wrapped up in that whole part of Bowie's career, but Definitely. what an amazing bit of artistry. So I really wanted to produce a bit of writing that teased out some of these issues and separated them out a little bit and um, looked at what he did and his artistry and how um, he dealt with these ideas, look at the music and what it's actually doing, not just what we think it's doing, but then also look at what happened and how that what happened changed everything. Um, and then also try and stay true to Bowie's artistry in the sense that he folded everything into it to try and unfold everything out of it and so to um, to connect it to his entire sphere of activities or his whole 50-year career and everything he'd been trying to say yeah. from the start, which is like a really big thing to do. And so I felt like a book is a good place to do that. So rather mm-hmm. than just writing a lot of think pieces or blogging or talking about it as an academic at conferences, I thought with Mm -hmm. a book, you can really stage it and you can place ideas in a sequence and you can 
come back to them and you can really kind of take the reader on a journey and hopefully they come with you and talk about a lot of things. So Mm -hmm. that's sort of where it came from. And um, once I sort of clocked on to the idea of it, I thought, I have to write this. This has to be it. My first book has to be this. Perfect. Yeah, that's such an amazing kind of um concepts to to go for it's of now like it's still really fresh i mean he did pass away a few years ago now but it still feels super fresh i think to everybody you're kind of the person who's got this perfect kind of perspective on things uh going through the music first and telling the story in that direction it's kind of quite a unique slant on things and does a lot of justice i think to the topic Oh, thank you. Yeah, I was very, I was very mindful. I mean, um, you know, I I came to the book wanting to call it Death Art, uh, Bowie's Death Art, which is a terrible name. It was like Black Star Theory, Bowie's Death Art, which is shocking. Um, but that's the but that's the title that I pitched to Bloomsbury, which they signed a contract on. And then I had to like write to them halfway through and say, look, I've changed my mind. It's not actually, I I can't say it's Death Art at all. It's just what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And that opened up this quite. Um, soul searching aspects in terms of you know I, I'm a I'm a music fan and, and a and a fan of Bowie's who was in a way searching for closure and mm-hmm. um really didn't owe it to me at all. And so what I ended up sort of having to do is let go of all these ideas that I thought it was um and actually just look at what it was doing. And I think that's a really big lesson that I took away from this. And and, and in music commentary in general, you know, you can't really say something means anything because it means yeah. things differently to everybody exactly. and it's not yeah. fixed. Uh, but like you can certainly say what it does. Uh, and you could definitely say, well, this, this motif that he's doing here that's in some polymetric constructions doing mm-hmm. something definitely let's talk about what it's doing or when he pulls in a reference from Berlin you say well that's doing something here um what, what could it be doing or well, for me it's doing this and, and I think if you sort of ground it in reality and then tease out what that might bring to the table the book kind of changed and it and it wrote it wrote itself in different directions that even surprised me and it led me to things that I didn't even notice before I started. And I thought that I, I thought I was going to be writing about one thing and then found out it was, I was writing about something totally differently. Um, yeah. Which was really nice. And I felt, um, I felt very engaged with, with the research and I tried my best to do, um, to sort of not tell the reader what to think necessarily, but just to lead them through, the mm-hmm. constellations and hopefully they can connect it all in, in a meaningful way um, at the end. That's so cool. Uh, I think that um, it is so easy, isn't it, as a fan? Um, and then you've got kind of the fan side, you've got the academic side and trying to sort of keep those two apart as much as possible. is such a big challenge, isn't it? Because you do want to assume that things are a certain way for a certain reason. Um, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I did I did really consciously, like, I don't talk actually as myself, like, you know, Leah as a fan. I don't really use that voice, except for in the preface and the prologue. So at the beginning, I kind of say, look, I'm, I'm a fan. I was on this journey. I'm a black star hunter. Da, 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 da. This is what I've done. But then when I'm in the book, I just really am just kind of wading through the the stuff and just kind of taking note of stuff when it comes up it mentions all these things all the time and it's like okay there's that thing again and there's this thing and then Tony said this and Jonathan Barnbrook said that and this ties in with this and this is interesting and that's lined up next to that and but then I get to the end and I I, I can say you know 
now I'm a fan, you know, this is how I feel. So um, that's another thing. I just wanted to erase my my context out of the, the, the bulk of the book as well because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter, you know. That's really noble yeah. of you to be able to do that. And it's amazing as well that you had all these different perspectives, all the access to Jonathan Barnbrook, the art cover art and other arts um, creator. You were speaking to the saxophonist or the flautist and the other musicians in the group and Tony as well, who we, of course, have many connections with in such a sort of under the microscope manner almost. Um, you got this close to the yeah. to the guy himself, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and all of that's really interesting. Um, you sort of so there's this real sort of workaday um, kind of reality to all that, and we assume there's some kind of magic or myth around the, the studio process. And I've been around studios enough, and I've seen Tony work mm-hmm. enough to know that a lot of that stuff that we presume is like the magic ingredient, the magic chemistry of the room um, isn't that necessarily at all. It's just professionals showing up to work. And actually the real artistry is in the conception and the arrangement and the co-production that Bowie brought to the table. He had all these ideas and they Mm -hmm. helped him realise his ideas. A lot of the time they didn't know what was really going on and it was actually, you know, um, just some choices that, that Bowie insisted on. I, this is a choice that I insist on to use that cheap synth that I love so much here in this song. And that, that's, that's what I'm going to do. And Tony's like, okay, or I'm going to use these tracks from the Zoom multi-track that I've recorded at home because I like the way they sound. Right. And Tony's like, okay. And and that's <laughs> as far as that goes. <laughs> and so um, the access is brilliant because you get an insight into the creative process, mm-hmm. which to me is really valuable. But that said, you know, interviewing people about stuff the surprising answers were actually the ones that were really valuable um Mm -hmm. really surprising answers from tony about um tibetan buddhism which i just really didn't um Mm -hmm. see coming until i sort of it sort of clicked about lazarus and um their working methods and how they demoed stuff and how they chose to um you know do the live thing for the bed but then after that it's still multi-tracking they move out of the main studio into human studio and it's just the vocal booth there Right. And they do the rest of it there privately. Mm-hmm. Um, those sorts of things are really illuminating because that opens up the the way it was made, um, the technology yeah. that was used. And, um, and you know, in terms of them talking about jokes and what they were listening to and, you know, jokes in the studio and the fact that they were reading books at the time or talking about right. movies. or What was influencing them and how it fed that's into really interesting. music yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. Cool. That sort of stuff's really interesting. So kind of on the topic of um, David Bowie and Visconti and like all their influences coming into things and that process, um, you do talk about in the book um, on the stylophone, like how it's kind of deeply rooted in that Bowie-Visconti partnership. Um, Why do you think that is? Um, I think it's it's a callback to their um, early sound in 1967 1968 mm-hmm. and even though um the stylophone was used in uh, a gus dungeon track um yeah it, mm-hmm. it was actually also used around the time they were doing um the man who sold the world album yeah. uh, metropolis so mm-hmm. a stylophone was sort of part of their little creative toolkit i guess um you know, when you're working with Tony in the studio, you'll notice he brings a recorder to the mm-hmm. session um, as a little yeah. thing that he can play on. 
Um, and I feel like, you know, the stylophone might have been hanging about um, in a similar sort of way um, in their sessions earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was something that Bowie in his late period brought back very consciously. Uh, but this was sort of in 2000 um, with pictures of Lily um, cover version where he sort of brought it in and, and played mm-hmm. it again. Um, and then they started integrating it in yeah. um, safe in the arrangement that Tony worked with there. So it seemed like it was just a sound that was linking back to the start of Bowie's career that when mm-hmm. they reunited in Bowie's late period career, yeah. they consciously drew on um and I think Bowie had already sort of folded it in a little bit because Pictures of Lily was with Mark Platty, if we look right. at the timing of everything. But it seems like Tony, with his sort of quite orchestral mindset as a producer, mm-hmm. was sort of keen to integrate it perhaps a little bit more. And so you hear it on Heathen and you hear it in some um, B-sides mm-hmm. and things like that. So I see it as um, a, a sort of sonic signifier mm-hmm. of their early relationship and of course when you think of their early relationship you think of space oddity even though he didn't produce that song it's a really long way of answering a question but i just think yeah. they it's yeah. like a definitely like a sort of callback to themselves mm-hmm. you know 40 years previous or 30 years previous at that time and so it was used deliberately as a reference to that time to make people think, to draw attention to yeah. uh, the length and breadth of their history together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's definitely a dimension that Bowie and, and Tony draw on in the late period for sure. That's interesting. Specifically as well, I think you saying that about like it's a signifier to their beginnings, I think because the style of it was kind of coming out at that time as well for the first time. It sort of feels like it slots perfectly into that timeline, doesn't it? And then yeah. Tony using the three fifty S and as well with other projects. So with Sparks, yes. That, that came about. Yeah. Well it works with Tony's sort of, as I said before, he has this kind of playful orchestral producer approach where he like anything lying around or anyone is lying around or anybody let's get involved in this let's use our collective voices let's grab something and play it he's very like that um however there's also just a really interesting like nexus of things that happened in 67 68 69 Mm -hmm. um you know with 68 you've got the stylophone coming out and bowie sort of um getting interested in this sort of you know mythic folkloric type songwriting style and then in 69 you've got the moon landing you've got Mm -hmm. um space odyssey 2001 stanley kubrick you've got um bowie writing songs inspired by that but you've also got this Mm -hmm. instrument that just got folded into that story and collected all this baggage you know all of these sort of emotional historical connotations um in the way that Bowie used that sort of fragile electronic alien sounding strange queer instrument Mm -hmm. and then that's attached to the beginning of his career and his takeoff and so in a way Bowie's identity is also attached to this sound and so when Tony and Bowie repeat that sound later in the career then it, mm-hmm. it just is such a potent thing to mention um and it's authentic because it's authentically tied into his legacy mm-hmm. and so um it'd be like akin to uh if paul mccartney decided to use a flute menatron um in right. something that he produced today it'd be unavoidable context to the mm-hmm. beatles and the way that they use that sound um, and I think it's a similar thing. It's like just this um, imprinted hauntology <laughs> to the sound of the stylophone mm-hmm. in the hands of Tony and Bowie particularly. 
So you did talk about pictures of Lily just now. Um, you did write an article for Dubrecht earlier in the year as well about the different occurrences of stylophone that pop up in Bowie's music, some of which I didn't even know about. Like It's, it's actually quite an interesting sort of um, unexpected, I think, um, one that pops up, this pictures of Lily. Um, I was interested to hear Bowie mention it in this um, interview, which I, I forget who it was with. It was for BBC Radio um, okay. Two, I think, and it's this interview where um, it's he's promoting Heathen, and right. the interviewer is talking about Slip Away and the Stylophone and trying to draw from him information about the Stylophone and and why he's visited again and um, and Bowie actually talks a little bit about it and I thought it was a really good find because he actually just explains um, why he was using it and why he likes it and how he happened to get one again and um, the story he said was that someone had given him one. Right. Um, in the year 2000, okay. uh, around millennium time. And, I mean, you probably want to just, <laughs> I don't want to, like, misquote uh, Bowie here, but mm -hmm. the gist of the interview was that he was given this instrument and he was quite excited by it, um, the sound of it, and he wanted to use it in this cover version that he was producing with Mark Platty. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was he was sort of integrating it into some other songwriting at the time because that, uh, that year they were producing Toy. And, of course, Toy right. came out. Mm. relatively recently yes. and there's some tracks on there that have got stylophone on them that i'd never heard before like lies the jane i think oh, okay um yeah. yeah so that was a surprise and so clearly he had the thing in the studio and was reaching for it and then of course there's your turn to drive which is the toy song which has lovely stylophone mm -hmm. parts in it as well as a uh, trumpet and violin and it feels like that he's positioning the instrument against those two mm. as a kind of ensemble, which I think is really lovely. Yeah, um, nice. And then it's not just Slip Away, it's, you know, these other tracks, these ones that sort of didn't come out on any album at the time mm -hmm. that show that he, he sort of had it with him all the time around that period, you know. And also the stylophone, it does show up on reality, which I didn't realise um, until I sort of listened really carefully oh, to the bridge of um, Never Get Old. You can hear it there. Mm -hmm. And again, yeah. you know, when you hear it, you hear it as a a specific reference, you know, in the context of Never Get Old, um, in this kind of reverie where he's kind of angrily talking about how he's, he refuses to get old, but he wants to be looked after by those people. Mm -hmm. But then there's this like kind of serene bridge and you hear this stylophone in it. And it's like this callback to being a young person. Mm -hmm. Similarly in Slip Away, when he uses it at the end, this very me uh, melancholic melody, which Tony Visconti wrote um, right. at the end, um, it absolutely calls back to the beginning of his career and brings a wistfulness of, of time past and mm -hmm. lost youth and all of this to the picture. Oh, and, you know, obviously yeah. heathens such, you know, so caught up in mortality and sort of, you know, mm -hmm. your life being half over and all that. So all of that is used in a really painterly way. You know, he's got to, using the sound, not just because it sounds cool. Well, there is in some cases, but in other cases he's pulling it out of the box because it brings so much to the table. Which I find really lovely. That's amazing. Uh, now that you've sort of given even more examples of that, uh, you know, referencing his past with the stylophone, it's really building a picture for me that's I'd never sort of thought of. I'm going to be, I think, listening to those songs with a fresh perspective now, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure when Bowie picked up the stylophone first. Do you know? Was it? No, I've tried to find um, the definitive story, but there's so much mm. myth around it. Right. Um, 
I know there was a story that like Mark Boland apparently gave him a stylophone, mm-hmm. but then Visconti has gone on the record as saying that that was a lie. No. Um, I think he might have suggested it in the first place. I think the story is that he was sent one um, or his manager, Ken Pitt, was sent one because Dubrek or Brian, whoever at the time, was just <laughs> trying to get it in the hands of everybody to play it. Yeah, and so same, anybody same who was, yeah. yeah, so anyone who was signed to any kind of publishing deal or record label who was up and coming in London would have received one. Um, as a gift. Right. And you can see evidence of this now when you have like small faces have it in 68 and Mark right. Bolden had one and mm. the Beatles yep. have one yep. <laughs> and get back. Obviously these, in, these people have been sent one yep. and they pull it out and play with it. So I think that's probably more likely the truth. That's, right. that's the origin story is that he was sent one and given to it courtesy Ken Pitt. But sense, um, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, so obviously uh, all these artists got one, probably more, some of them used it, some of them didn't. Um, but he seems to stand out as the one that's kind of done some great things with it. Um, what do you think made him decide to use it so much? There was a thing that came out called Spying Through the Peephole, which was these early demos that were done for Mercury okay. in 69. So this was when Bowie hadn't had he hadn't had a record deal anymore and he mm-hmm. was trying to negotiate something in 69. He was writing all this stuff wow. uh, and doing these demos. And you can hear the demos of what would have, what that did become space oddity or, you know, man of words, man of music, whatever came out in okay. 69. And the early demos of space oddity have these exposed stylophone parts in there. And um, when oh. you listen to, have you heard these? Um, I don't think so. I'm going to have to now. <laughs> you can find them on, they used to be on um, Spotify. You know, they've taken them off now because it oh. was a limited thing. But you can find it on YouTube. But okay. there's this um, version of Space Oddity with different words and it's really sketchy. But oh. the stylophone part is there and it's okay. functioning as like a, a cello, um, a cello line. And it's very much a cello line. And he's using his hands uh, to create... Uh, dynamics on the instrument Amazing. and it makes me think that he was using it in lieu of having a, a string player there it was almost mm-hmm. like demo synth line like where he thought yeah. maybe this would be a bassoon or strings okay. that's what I think I think it was just like let, I've got this instrument here let's put this line in but it really feels cello like to me uh, as if you know maybe we'll get a cellist to play this in the studio wow. um, so I have a feeling that it was like a, a placeholder mm-hmm. in the demoing process that perhaps you know as he was working with the instrument realized that it had um, unique expressive potential this kind wow. of you know it articulates that kind just thinking about like the the original Love Love You Till Tuesday version of the Space Oddity video where everything's oh, handmade yeah. and plastic and mm-hmm. looks a bit cheap and a bit yeah. toy-like. And I feel like the stylophone fits into that aesthetic really well, this sort of, you know, folk singer with just with toys and, you know, plastic visor and homemade T-shirt and it, it fits into that <laughs> yeah. in a really kind of emotional way. Um, so maybe, you know, being as perceptive as he was, he just thought this has got unique expressive potential Mm-hmm. I can play it myself. Um, That's so interesting. Yeah. So I would say definitely like, um, I've, you know, there is a, a part of me that sort of 
takes to the stylophone for its ability to offer me that kind of quick access playing different things without having other musicians that's definitely something that it's it was one of the things that drew me to it so that's interesting that you think that that could be a potential reason that it drew he was drawn to it as well yeah i think so i mean if you, if you listen to those demos it's it's him and, and uh cambo playing two big 12 string guitars i think just strumming away singing the song but in between you've got this like this like counter melody line that he wouldn't have been able to do any other way um aside from bringing in another instrument instrumentalist and um the stylophone just it, it fulfilled a function i think of being as you say accessible and easy to play but also um it's what's was notable is that he kept it in the final version it was recorded a few times right and like there's one version yeah. where there isn't a stylophone but it's in the demo from the mm -hmm. very start so that's kind of points to his process of being like when we did these scrappy demos before um actually i want to bring that stylophone instrument to the final production mm -hmm. which i think says a lot do you think um like Bowie's intention is kind of different between uses or do you think it's literally just kind of i want to share a part of my my past is like harking back to that or do you think it's something completely different um each time what do you think is his intention between the uses of the stylophone um i think um i suspect that it's with an artist's view of color like it's about mm -hmm. the patina the touch the texture the color of the sound um particularly yeah. in the section where you hear it in after all mm -hmm. uh, it comes in doing something quite specific <laughs> to yeah. sort of because he's got chamberlains and he's got other synthesizers in that track so he doesn't need a synthesizer but he chooses it to do this kind of da -da 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 -da, this kind of gliss yeah which um when you put reverb on it when you um put delays on it it kind of has this sort of overwhelming sound and he uses that same gesture in space oddity too um in the move to the bridge and so i think that sort of says to me that in those two early instances of the instrument there was no other instrument that could give him that sound yeah. and so he picks it up to do that sound which is this kind of lush but electronic psychedelic futuristic expressive gesture but then later on his career i certainly think that every time he's doing stylophone things it's in the knowing that it's a color from the past and very, mm -hmm. very specifically self-consciously. So, yeah. and when he uses a stylophone later, um, it's in that intention, mm -hmm. not an expressive tension. I don't think he's going, what do I need to make this song work? Oh, stylophone. I think he's thinking, would it be meaningful if we put mm -hmm. the stylophone here and how would that change the understandings of, of these lyrics and the song in general and who I am at this point in my life, singing these words in this way. And so very much the artistry in, in the late period is about assemblage, you know, what is here and what's there and why are they close together and why is that there and what is this choice doing? Um, mm. And so, yeah, the intentionality is different, definitely, in his later career. Why do you think he's been so successful? Like, if anyone thinks of David, of the stylophone, the artist they're probably going to think of first is David Bowie. Do you have any thoughts on that? Why he's kind of the one that people think of? Um, 
Well, he had the biggest hit with it, I think. Um, I mean, Space Oddity is, was a global hit. It's seeped into the cultural consciousness in terms of mm-hmm. uh, attached to him and his star image. And it's a song that's played on the radio a lot to this day. Um, you know, you think about Kraftwerk used the style of phone, but Pocket Calculator would never had that reach. Um, yeah, and it's not like you can even, kind of tell that it's stylophone really, can you? There's nothing... Yeah, um, I think part of the reason stylophone is so known uh, attached to the Bowie brand is because of the aggressive marketing that both Bowie and Debrek did to promote that fact um, mm. in the sense that, you know, if anyone even knows what a stylophone is, is probably because uh, they've heard of it from, a, from the Bowie song, the famous Bowie song, right. if they hadn't come across it in the other way, right? It's that mm-hmm. weird instrument that's famous from that song because the song is more famous than the instrument itself. And so mm-hmm. I think those things combined meant that, um, <laughs> that uh, it's just like the, the definitions kind of, you know, come together. Just, yeah, the marketing yeah. and the song release and everything all happened at the same time. And it yeah, exactly. And I- Speaking of Bowie and Stylophones, um, earlier this year, recently, I think it was, the uh, Bowie edition of the Stylophone S1, the 2021, was released... And you were tasked with writing the booklets and some tabs for the booklets as well. Do you have any perspective on what do you think he would have thought about having an instrument that has his name on it? Uh-huh. Oh, I don't know. I've got lots of, I wonder a lot about what he would think about yeah. everything that's happened since he died in terms of merchandising. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm sure he wouldn't have minded uh, having an instrument like a style of me, you're putting up next to big branding things like not just the Bowie stylophone, but like there was a Barbie yeah. doll, and there were yeah. happy socks. There mm. were there's been early. So I don't want to speculate on, you know, yeah. whether he would have enjoyed seeing his legacy used to sell mass produced products. Um mm-hmm. however, um I like it. I think it's a cute thing. I think out of all of the merch that's come out since he mm-hmm. died. Um, it's got a legitimate claim to to the legacy. It makes sense. Um, I don't I don't begrudge Debrett from doing it. I actually really Mm -hmm. I'm really glad they did it. So in in that in that perspective, yeah, I I love it. And um it sounds good, it looks good, it's white, they paid attention to um Mm -hmm. details with it. Yeah, it's lovely. To wrap up our discussion on Black Star Theory. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, like in terms of Bowie's writing, what do you think aspiring artists can take away from the legacy that he's left behind? Do you have any thoughts? Oh on gosh, that? yeah, I think I think um, anyone who's creative in any way um, can take away a lot of really good lessons from Bowie's artistry. Mm-hmm. Beautifully, he was really quite open about his creative process. Um, especially in interviews around the mid-90s and in 2003. If you go through those interviews, he's very forthcoming Mm -hmm. about his process and his philosophy. Um, But he was always very big on risk-taking and this idea of um, perhaps not feeling safe. He used to invoke this quote that he got from Brian Eno about crashing his plane. So he would often say that, you know, in art, you can crash your plane and walk away, meaning that if it all goes wrong, 
and it all goes up in flames. It's not a life or death situation. Mm-hmm. Um, you can try again. It's actually really safe. Um, you don't have to overthink it too much. And um, so cool. and this kind of giving yourself permission to crash your plane and make mistakes is like probably the biggest mm-hmm. gift um, any creative person can receive. Permission to fail um, because mm-hmm. you can't get better unless you do. And um, yeah. I think Bowie, Bowie's artistry, people now since he died are very quick to sort of say, oh, what a genius, and to mm-hmm. reappraise all of his work and cast it in the light of like, well, wow, what a visionary. But, you know, when you look at it, mm-hmm. um, I, I would say that, you know, there are some masterpieces there, but there are also some failures and there are also some works that aren't as successful as others. And he also had some pretty public um, sort of patches where he was not accepted critically. And the way that he wore all of that and the way that he navigated all of that, particularly um, the mid-80s to the mid-90s, that period where he was sort of at his lowest point in popularity and critical acclaim, Mm -hmm. I find really fascinating to look at how he navigated his his artistry. Mm -hmm. Right. Which I think is a really great gift for anyone who's creative and interested in Bowie to go and study that period mm-hmm. uh, and how he kept on crashing his plane. Um, but every time taking something from the last thing and using it in the next thing, um, in making it even better every time, making it even better. So... We've reached a very exciting portion of the episode, Ooh. which um, I've literally just called Guess the Tab Game because I could not think of a better <laughs> name. <laughs> Guess the Tab Game. Um, I love it. So essentially what happens is I'm going to be sending you a tab, a stylophone tab. For anyone listening who doesn't know what a tab is, it's a way that you can read read stylophone music um, with numbers um stylophones have numbers on them and it's another way that people can learn music um if they're just starting out so that's what i'm going to be sending to leah right now she's never seen this before and she's going to have about 10 seconds to look at the tab (laughs) and try and mess around with it and see if she can figure out what the song is and also try and play it how does that sound okay i'm up for it I think if anyone can do this one, it's you. I've gone for something a little more challenging. Okay. okay. So the time starts now. Okay. Hmm. Time's up. So that was obviously a very short amount of time. Um, which adds to the fun of this challenge. Do you have any <laughs> thoughts at all as to what this might be? Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> I don't know the song. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I'm going to give you a big clue. I'm just holding up Leah's book for context. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes. Okay, now. Now, now I understand it. Yes. Okay. Right. Yes. Fantastic. I didn't win. I didn't win the prize. Sorry. Oh, we all win on on Sound of Stylus. We all get (laughs) inducted into the Hall of Fame for taking part. That's what matters. So thank you very much for taking part in that fun round. (laughs) No worries. Thank you. (laughs) 
amazing. So uh, we have come to the end of the episode, sadly. Um, just before we go, just before we leave you, I wanted to ask you, uh, kind of, do you have any upcoming plans or anything that's come out recently that I ha- haven't heard about in terms of your any any other books, any of your own music, Stardophone Orchestra? St- I'm working on some music with a saxophonist who whose name's Lara James, who played on Rokokoshe, an album of mine a few years ago. Yeah. And we're looking at um, female psychogeography. So this idea of like places that aren't historically safe and how we can feel that mm. as women. Yeah. Um, and so that's a project that I'm working on at the moment. I'm quite excited about, very atmospheric, obviously. And um, I wrote um, a chapter for this book, The Oxford Handbook to David Bowie, which <laughs> is coming out Whoa, I didn't soon. know that was yeah. a book like that. I know, I right? It's about like time. There's going to be an Oxford Companion. Um, I think it's Oxford Companion. Yeah, I think it is. It's either Oxford or Cambridge. I'm pretty sure it's Oxford. <laughs> um, but they, they asked me to write a chapter about Bowie and classical music, which is a really interesting oh. angle to take. So I'm just editing that now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know when that's going to be out. Maybe next year. Oh, but yeah, so. I know Bowie studies. Oh, no, no, there's, there's a whole scene of academics that are getting into it, which is, uh, it makes a lot of sense because um, okay. his work sort of engages with so many intellectual ideas. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, so look out for that when it comes out. <laughs> I certainly will. And hopefully some people yeah. are listening too. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us today, um, giving your time and sharing so many interesting perspectives and ideas on Bowie and Stylophone that I'd never thought of before. And I think some listeners will have been surprised as well, for sure. Um, Oh, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed our chat very much. Thank you so, so much. For more on Leah Cardos and her projects, head to her website, leahcardos.com. And if you're interested in digesting black style theory in an audiovisual way, you can check out her YouTube video series called Bowie Track Analyses. The Kingston University Stylophone Orchestra can be found on Instagram as at styloorc, and their debut album Stylophonica is available on Bandcamp. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world if you could give the podcast a five-star rating and share the episode on social media, tagging me at Mari Dangerfield and the podcast at Sound of Stylus. You can find us on Instagram at Sound of Stylus and on YouTube by searching Sound of Stylus.